The family trust allows the benefit of allocating capital gains to family members and multiplying the use of their exemptions. One of the best cases I saw of this was we had a client that asked us how to best set up the ownership to minimize tax. They ended up selling and they realized about $11 million on the sale. He had his three kids as beneficiaries of the trust, six grandchildren, himself and his wife. He actually had 11 capital gain exemptions. Had he not done that, they'd be looking at about 2 or $3 million of tax on the sale. Welcome to Your Retirement Planning Simplified with your host, Joseph Curry, a CFP professional who is going to help you learn how to simplify your retirement planning. This podcast is all about helping you answer those burning questions you've had about your retirement possibilities and making a plan to get there. Through retirement planning education, resources, and expert interviews, Joe will help you get clear on your retirement vision, how to simplify it, and what you'll need specifically to achieve or maintain your financial freedom. Ready to live out your retirement dreams and create future opportunities for the ones you love? Then let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Your Retirement Plan and Simplified. I'm Joe Curry, along with my co-host, Lindsay Wilson. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great, Joe. Back to work. It's a new year. It is and a new year. Yeah, our first recording of the new year. That's right. Yeah, and we have our guest, Matt Holmes. Yeah, so we've known Matt for a long time. We have some mutual clients. Uh, we work together on, on some different client cases, specifically a lot of our business owner clients. So today, it was great to have Matt on the show. This is definitely geared a little more to our business owner listeners, but we talked about some different things we need to think about when we're going to sell, a little bit of overlap with uh, our David Barnett episodes, but some new stuff on here too, more of a, a tax angle, things we need to worry about while we're getting ready to sell from a tax standpoint, things we can be doing to save money for taxes, the importance of setting up uh, the structure of our, our companies, right? And really, I think one of the big things I took out of today is the importance of planning ahead and not waiting to the last second. So a lot of good insights from Matt that I know any business owners out there are going to definitely benefit from. Absolutely. And a continuation of the earlier podcast, we've talked to business professionals like David C. Barnett and Bob Govro, other episodes that we've covered business transitions. So a little bit about Matt. He's a CPA CA and is the co-founder of Holmes Risley CPAs and Tax Advisors. And their mission is to bring specialized tax expertise to clients in central Ontario. He's got 25 years of experience in tax planning, tax reporting, and business planning and is well known for his trustworthy advice when making changes to business structures and his expert tax knowledge. He frequently works with businesses on family succession, business continuity, mergers and acquisitions, and other tax-saving strategies. And his ability to provide forward-thinking advice has helped him help clients save hundreds of millions in tax dollars and earned him the reputation of one of the province's top tax planning experts. So a lot of great knowledge in this podcast from Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So hope everybody enjoys the show. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, good. How are you, Joe? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on. We are just chatting before, so everybody listening, if you hear us coughing or, or reading our mics or anything, Matt and I are both getting <laughs> over a cold right now. So, oh, but we're going to get through this today. Sure thing. So, Matt, I'm excited to have you on the show because I know you work with a lot of business owners. The listeners of our show, most of them are approaching or in retirement, but a lot of them are also business owners who are kind of at 
that same stage. So always happy when we get an expert on who has yeah. some insights into the space and I'm going to jump right into, I'll start asking you some questions and we'll go from there. So sure. The first question I have for you today is what are some of the mistakes you frequently see business owners make when it comes to trying to create value or maximize value within their business? Yeah. We've gone through a lot of these in the past, a lot of sales, a lot of internal successions. So we've had a good opportunity to see some common mistakes, some common successes. I'd say a lot of the common mistakes that we see business owners make is just not planning well far enough in advance of a sale. Oftentimes, whether it's either a sale comes out of the blue, a purchaser comes out of nowhere, offers a big offer, they find they're not set up well to make the sale. That can present some challenges right at that point, trying to get into a sale. Or it may be a case where I've seen um, vendors have to be in a position to sell because of health issues and not having a plan in place or a contingency plan if something happened that they would be able to sell and successfully transfer their business. In terms of creating value, I think it's always a bit of a competitive battle between showing profits sometimes in a business versus minimizing tax. And a lot of business owners run a lot of expenses through their business in the interest of reducing income and reducing tax. But that can have a multiplying effect when it comes to a sale. Give you an example. For instance, I had a case where it was a husband-wife couple, owned a business, ran a business for years. They had a lot of expenses in the business that is common for a lot of owner managers, home office expenses, vehicle. And of course, they maximized that. They did offsite um, director meetings, so they might have had a trip somewhere and they were deducting costs like that. And when you add all these costs up, it might have added up to about fifty dollars to $100,000 or so. And the tax savings on that might be about anywhere from six dollars to $12,000 a year. Well, of course, when it comes time for a sale and you're trying to determine the price, oftentimes a purchaser is looking back at your past years. When you're determining value at that time, it's relative to what has the earnings been in the business for the last few years. We often try to do our best to try to normalize earnings so that a purchaser looks at it. They see what is the earnings going to be without all these extra expenses in it. But it's not always easy to capture those expenses. Sometimes they're hidden. Sometimes the owner forgets about them. So when it comes time to do a valuation, oftentimes you're looking at past earnings you apply an earnings multiple to those earnings to figure out what the price is going to be. And of course, if you've got $100,000 of extra expenses that don't need to be there, if in a standard multiple, if you're looking at anywhere from four to five times earnings, that could have almost a half a million dollars of impact on a purchase price. So we do often try to coach our clients to start cleaning up the financials leading up to a sell. Let's try to get a true picture of what the earnings are and exclude all of those items that might be personal in nature. Yeah, when you start talking about numbers like that, all of a sudden, six or $12,000 of tax savings doesn't sound so great. That's right, exactly. When you're comparing to half a million dollars in your pocket. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing you mentioned in there was sometimes people have to sell not because they want to, because something else comes up like health. Mm. I've talked to a lot of business owners who told me they never plan to retire or exit the business, right? But maybe you could just yep. expand on that a little bit. Like, is that something that you do see often where people weren't planning on selling, but just life circumstances come up and they need to? Yeah, I've seen it a couple times. I'd say the worst case I saw, I'd actually been to this client. He was new to me. We talked about getting a will set up and I offered to kind of help him get that set up with his lawyer. And his response to me was, well, yeah, we'll do that, but it's not a priority right now. Let's get through this year. And 
his old will, he was telling me he had his ex-wife named in it. He was leaving everything to his ex-wife who was married at the time when he created the will. And of course, he ended up passing in a tragic accident, unfortunately. And it was a real bit of a sad story, but basically they did determine that his wife was considered to be predeceased for that purpose. So everything was left to his kids, but his kids had to come in, then determine what to do with this business. And they weren't active in the business. They weren't running the business. There was a key employee that had interest in buying the business. But what we did see is value was greatly reduced because he didn't have a plan in place to eventually transition to this employee at what price, what payment terms, or he maybe hung on a little too long. But the issue there certainly was there was just no plan in place. So we had to go in, help the family try to negotiate a sale, establish some reasonable terms. But certainly they got a lot less than what they might have had there been a proper plan in place. You know, a lot of this planning, even getting your wills in place or you know, buy, sell, all that kind of stuff is, I don't think anyone would argue with you that you shouldn't have it in place, but it's that thing that kind of lives on that quadrant and the important but not urgent that can just keep getting kicked down the road, right? Absolutely. I find it's overwhelming a little bit because nobody knows where to start necessarily. And I've even seen this in my own practice. It's where do you start? What is the price? Who's going to be the buyer? And how do you put that plan in place? And it's not an easy exercise, but it does take some time to develop. Yeah, I think that's really where advisors can come in to help guide that journey, right? Because yeah, yeah, to just try to figure it out all on your own when it's not your business, there is a lot can be overwhelming for sure. Absolutely. So if we look at some of your more successful clients or the businesses that you work with, are there anything you've kind of seen in common or any kind of trends that you, you see that stand out for you? Yeah, I would say um, starting with the idea that a lot of those successful transitions, they're thinking about it five years in advance and they're starting to put plans in place now to lead up to that sale. So they have a clear idea of when a transition should happen or at least being ready for when it does come available, they'll be able to make that switch. I would say something that I've seen over the years that, Personally, I've struggled with myself in advising clients, but I think we're getting better at it. And it's certainly, it only comes with working with people such as yourself, Joe, to figure out what does that person actually need in retirement? When's an optimal time for them to actually transition out of the business? And at what sale price is it going to make sense for them? Because they've got a plan for their income for the next, you know, if you're retiring at 65, I mean, we like to take a plan out to at least age 90 to make sure there's enough income. And they kind of need to see that to be able to know, can I afford to sell it right now? At what price do I have to get? So I think one of the key successes I've seen in a lot of these transitions lately has been starting with the end in mind, determining what you need from it, and then let's establish a plan to get that price and realize that price. And sometimes people will look at it and say, well, I can't afford to quite retire at 60. Let's push that to 65. But at least they know, right? It's narrowing in on the time frame and the price they have to realize. Yeah. I had to become my certified exit plan advisor designation last year. Nice. So that's really on the framework, what that whole program is built on. It's really about figuring out, they call it kind of, what's your wealth cap? Like, what do we actually need to get from the business, right? Yep. There's some kind of combination of selling and in the meantime, saving and investing. And the other thing there they talk a lot about is exit planning is really just good business strategy. It doesn't matter if you're gonna exit next year, five years or 10 years from now. If you're doing things to increase your earnings and make it so that you know the business isn't reliant on you to be there every day and things like that, that's just good for the business anyway. Absolutely. 
You just mentioned a key point there too, is I think from a business perspective, it's making sure the business can operate without you. And not only is that a good contingency plan just for general business purposes and peace of mind for, for their family, but you can often drive up earnings multiples. If I had my partner, Mike Risley, who's a business valuator, he would tell you that the more successful a business can be on its own without owner involvement, obviously would drive up an earnings multiple when you're determining what the price could be. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, earnings is important, but whether you have to pay people to come in or if you have to work in the business, if you're going to buy it, it's going to be a big difference in what you're willing to pay for it, right? That's right. Absolutely. All right. Now, we might have already kind of hit this, but if we had to pick one or two planning items that you wish every established business owner would tackle, what comes to mind? I'm coming at it from the world of structuring and tax advisory. And I would think the best thing they can do is getting their structure right from the beginning. And sometimes that can be a little more complicated than they'd like, or it might be a little more costly, but we've seen it several times. People that do this can really save a lot of tax when it comes time to sell. So for example, we often look at setting up family trusts as owners of shares of the company. And the future hope of using a family trust is the ability to potentially multiply the use of every individual's lifetime capital gain exemption. So if an owner manager owns shares of a company directly, they sell shares of the company, they could get their lifetime exemption just up to about a million dollars tax-free. Obviously, if we have other people in the share ownership, you can multiply the use of the exemptions, but the owner manager may not actually want their kids owning shares directly or even grandkids, for example. The family trust allows them to actually have the benefit of allocating capital gains to family members and multiplying the use of their exemptions. One of the best cases I saw of this was we had a client that set up a company. He asked us how to best set up the ownership to minimize tax. It was just a startup. And quite honestly, we even kind of said in that time, we said, well, you know, you can set up a trust, but maybe it's an added cost you just don't want at this point. He could see far enough in the future. He said, no, I think I'll make use of that. Let's do it right the first time, do it right out of the gate. And he got the right structure set up. They ended up selling probably about five or six years later, and they realized about $11 million on the sale. And he had his three kids as beneficiaries of the trust. I think he had about six grandchildren, himself and his wife. Oh, wow. He actually had 11 capital gain exemptions that he was able to use on the sell. The exemption wasn't as high then, but I'd say majority of the proceeds were received tax-free. And otherwise, had he not done that, you know, they'd be looking at about 2 or $3 million of tax on the sell. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, do you find that there's a time where it's too early to set that up? Or if you're worried about, you know, the trusts running into the 21-year rule, things like that? Yeah, that's a good point. We do watch that because I don't like to set up trusts just because of the complications unless we know it's going to get them a benefit. So it is an added cost. Like it's an added cost to set one up, maintain it, file tax returns. But you mentioned the 21-year rule too. So somebody that maybe has really young children or they themselves are fairly young, they may not be planning to sell within 20 years. And these trusts have a bit of a lifetime. Every 21 years, there's a deemed disposition of all the trust property at fair market value. And you have to kind of make a decision at that point. You are allowed to roll trust property out and not be subject to tax, but then you have to make a decision of where it's going. So give you an example, you could have a business owner in his early 20s, mid 20s, young children, no interest in ever selling this business early. But if they were to set up a trust now, they'd actually have to make a decision by the time they're 46. And their kids may only be in their early 20s and have to decide where is this trust property going? 
Yeah. And in the end, they may have to decide it's either going to come back to me in full or I'm going to allocate something to my children. And that may not be a good idea for other reasons. So often you kind of find in a case like that, the trusts really didn't give them any benefit. So sometimes it makes sense to kind of wait a few years, see how the business does. You can always do what's called an estate freeze at that time. You freeze the value at that point in time of your shares and the trust comes in and purchases new shares of the company. That helps extend that period where you're not having to give property to your kids in their early 20s and exiting or making a decision about what to do with your shares in your mid-40s. All right. And you're not going to be forced to pay a tax or anything at, the, at that point. That's right. Okay. Now, you talked about lifetime capital gains exemption. So I know there's things you need to worry about if you have other investments, passive investments, and there's kind of like a two-year window, I guess, to kind of purify your company, right? Maybe you could speak a little bit to that. Absolutely. And that's maybe another challenge we often see business owners faced with if a sale comes out of the blue. And if they've been accumulating passive assets, investments in their companies, they may find they're not eligible for a capital gain exemption, or at the very least, they got to find a way to get that money out ahead of a sale. And the eligibility is in two years leading up to a sale, you can't have more than 50% of the asset value in non-active business assets. And at the time of sale, you can't have more than 10% of the asset value represented in, in non-active business assets. You know, example on a $2 million sale, you're not going to be able to have more than $200,000 in excess cash or investments. Otherwise, it won't qualify. So a lot of the planning we do is sometimes, unfortunately, has to be reactive. We have to get that money out ahead of a sale. Not always easy to get that out in a way that's going to be tax-free. We look for simpler ways to do it in terms of paying off debt, things like that. More elaborate schemes can be to spin excess assets out to a separate holding company. And again, normally that can happen tax-free if you're doing it well in advance of a sale, but right immediately before a sale, there's rules in place that prevent you from doing that on a tax-free basis. That also kind of lends to or leads to the idea of the trust structure. Sometimes it's easier to what we call purify a company by paying it out to a trust and allocating it off to the side to a corporate holding company, a beneficiary of the trust. It can be very difficult otherwise to do it in ways that are tax-free. So for that reason, sometimes it's good to set up that kind of structure just to be able to do that on an ongoing basis. Another challenge sometimes is real estate holdings. Like that can be a little more challenging. Like sometimes it's easier to move cash, but to actually transfer real estate is tough. So we often advise that perhaps any real estate that's used in the business should be in a separate company altogether. That could just give the buyer some flexibility later when they go to sell. If the purchaser doesn't want the real estate, they can sell the business or they can just sell them both companies. If it's passive real estate, we just recommend keeping it out of the company altogether, putting it in a separate hold co. And when we say passive real estate, I mean like typically rental properties, things like that. Okay. What about the building the business runs out of? Where does that fit into the picture? Yeah. So that is considered an active asset for capital gain exemption purposes. There's nothing wrong with having that in the operations. And if you're able to sell the business along with the real estate, you can just realize it on a part of the sell of the shares. But oftentimes we do see cases where a buyer will come in and they'll say, we really don't need the real estate. We may have our own location if it happens to be a competitor that's making the purchase or maybe the type of business that they can just run without bricks and mortar. So they're often faced with a tough decision at that point to try to either spin the real estate out sell the shares, get their capital gain exemption, or else they may be forced into a 
taxable sell of the business. So that can present challenges, which is why we often recommend keeping it separate because it'll just give them the flexibility later. Sure. And if they sell the shares of the real estate company as well, it also qualifies for a capital gain exemption. Okay. So they're not giving up that opportunity. That's right. It's really just buying flexibility. It's also good business practice. You know, you don't always want all your assets in the business and exposed to potential creditors. So just even from a potential legal perspective, it's just good practice to get it out of there. Perfect. Yeah, it all makes perfect sense. So are there any nuances or things people should know about when it comes to selling, whether it's going to be to a third party versus a family member? Yeah, definitely the negotiation's a lot different. That's for sure. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, oftentimes we see that the sale to a third party, you're trying to maximize the value. And sometimes when it's within a family, it's more about preserving the legacy of the business. People aren't necessarily looking to get as much in proceeds from the sale. However, the Income Tax Act, it, it actually requires you to report it as if you just received full fair market value proceeds, even if you, you have no intention of actually charging a family member that level of the proceeds. So it does become a little bit of a challenge sometimes in trying to balance the objectives of all the parties involved in a family transition. So we tend to start with identifying what are the goalposts, what is the fair market value of the business, what's the minimum the owner needs to receive. Another factor is often can the business support those types of earnings to be able to fund the purchase price to the owner and for how long. And often what we try to do is narrow in to something we kind of refer to as a bit of a sweet spot. What price can they realize that will satisfy their retirement needs, but their children or family members will be able to afford to fund? And what time frame is reasonable for that? And of course, balancing that with the income tax rules that say, even if you sell it for 50% of the value, you still have to report it at 100% of the value. So there has to be some consideration of how you fund the tax in that case. And of course, always trying to minimize that as well. I'd say what was unique about 2022, 2023 in family business successions was this introduction that came in under Bill C-208. Previously, business owners weren't allowed to sell shares of a company to a child's holding company and be able to claim their capital gain exemption while allowing the child to use money from the business to fund them. It was always only something that was available in an arm's length sale. And then when they introduced this, it was a nice gift to family business successions because sure. it finally allowed the owners to be able to use their exemptions and kids to use money from the business to fund it. I think when they brought it out, it came out ahead of an election. It was rushed legislation and they recognized that it didn't really actually require a sale of a business to happen or change of control. Right. So the government quickly recognized that they were going to have to come back and make some amendments to limit the scope of when you could do this. So what they were concerned about was people artificially selling some shares, being able to take money out of their business tax-free. They didn't want to be able to just allow that. They wanted it to be aimed directly at family business successions and true successions. So they recently, and actually just effective now for 2024, there's new rules around this. And they're a lot more restrictive, but the good news is this is still in place for family business successions. But some of the rule changes now require actual control to shift. And over within a reasonable period of time, three years, some cases 10, depending on how it's structured. And what was interesting about the new rules, they want to see management decisions actually change hands as well, which is really interesting in how they worded this in the Tax Act, because I'm not sure how you measure that exactly. I was just going to, yeah, I was just wondering that. 
Yeah. So I think we're going to find, you know, we were looking at a, a new transition under the new rules. And I think, you know, with every legislation that's introduced, there's always new questions and uncertainties. And I guess that is one thing we like about our job as tax advisors. Anytime there's a new rule, there's going to be new opportunities in how you structure things. So it'll be interesting to see how these new rules apply going forward. And I'm sure there'll be more guidance that'll be coming out over the next few years. But at least that's still in place. We just have to kind of learn to abide by the new rules effective Gen 1 2024. Yeah, fair enough. Now, that was going to be my next question around rules for 2024. Is there any other rules changing that business owners should be aware of for this year? Yeah, certainly the Bill C-28 rules were pretty huge. We had a lot of family business successions that were accelerated knowing these rules were coming into place. So December was busy. I'm happy we're in January now a little bit. We get a little bit of a breather. <laughs> but I would say on top of that, one of the other couple other big rule changes coming in for 2024, new alternative minimum tax rules. So previously, when you would sell shares of your company, claim an exemption, the government had these rules in place before. And there were rules that would say, if you're getting too good of a deduction, such as say the capital gain deduction, they would impose this minimum amount of tax somebody had to pay. So claiming an exemption, you know, I always said it's a tax-free sale. But oftentimes what would happen is an owner had to pay up to $50,000, $55,000 of alternative minimum tax once they claim their exemption. So it wasn't completely tax-free. But the idea of AMT is if you pay it in a year of sale, you can carry it forward and apply it against future income tax. So it's kind of like a prepaid tax that right. somewhat gets refunded over the next several years. You have up to seven years to use it. There's new rules in place. And what they've done is they've increased the amount of the exemption. So that was a beneficial thing. So previously, you didn't have to worry about it up to $40,000. They've increased that up to about 190000 or so, I think. And that actually makes room for a lot more transactions that won't necessarily fall into the AMT rules. But in the case of a business sale, you're going to be above that exemption. Like if you sell for and claim your million dollars, you're in excess of that exemption. Right. And what they've done now is there's a lot more scenarios the AMT applies to. So in cases of like donations and RSP deductions, AMT can be imposed and it's coming in at a much higher rate too. So previously the AMT rate federally was 15%. It's up to 20%, 20.5%. I think one of the hidden things of this change is how the provinces react to this. So while the federal government announces this change, the provinces, the, the rates actually automatically go up even more because the provinces have an increase in that as well. So typically in Ontario, they would be roughly 50% of the regular AMT rate. So if the federal rate was 15%, the Ontario portion of that was basically 50% of the federal rate. Now that they've increased it, the province also gets a lift. So the AMT rate ends up being about 30% where previously it was like 20%. So that's a big change. We just kind of have to be mindful of that going forward and kind of plan around it as much as we can. AMT, it's a bit of a pain, but it is something that we often just have to plan around. So what I mean by that is they might have to pay it on a sale. Then it's up to us together with advisors such as yourself, Joe, and figuring out what kind of income are they going to have to realize now to recover that AMT. So that's where you might find RSP withdrawals become useful after a sale creating some kind of source of income that's going to trigger enough tax to get that AMT back. Another big change coming in is the new general anti-avoidance rules. 
we used to have the benefit of doing a lot of different types of planning to realize capital gains. And, you know, oftentimes you might hear it referred to as surplus stripping. And the government a number of years ago had identified that as an issue and they wanted to tackle that. They actually introduced some legislation back in 2017 that was designed to prevent it. But after some consultations back and forth, they abandoned that legislation. And now with this new anti, general anti-avoidance rule, what they've imposed is normally this general anti-avoidance rule referred to as GAR. It applied where they felt there was any abusive tax planning, any kind of planning that was put in place that was a tax avoidance transaction and they felt was abusive as it related to the act as a whole. What they've done now, and that was always general, open to a lot of interpretation because it was always a question you know, clearly if you did something to avoid tax, that was an avoidance transaction, but it was always a question whether it was abusive. And what they've done now is they brought out a supplemental rule to the GAR to say that it's what they refer to as an economic substance rule. For example, we could do a transaction to create a capital gain internally, but if you actually didn't sell it to anybody and realize proceeds, this new rule will say, really, we feel that creating this capital gain, it could be an avoidance transaction, it could be abusive, but if it had no real economic substance where you actually didn't realize proceeds, right? they can now step in and say, we're going to remove any of the tax advantages you just realized from this transaction. So of course, when they bring in a rule like this, it's always a concern about how broad they can apply it. So that was really what they were perhaps targeting with surplus stripping, but it could even potentially apply in a case where you transfer assets between two companies or individuals intending to realize a gain that capital gains are the most tax efficient source of an income compared to dividends or interest, but you didn't necessarily realize that you didn't realize proceeds for that. So you could find that this rule is applying in a broad range of transactions that really wasn't intended. And I think that's got maybe tax advisors a little bit on edge until we see how they begin to apply these new rules. Right. Yeah. One of those yeah, things, unfortunately, you don't know what their uh, discretion is going to look like until they actually practice it. Absolutely. Well, look, Matt, this has been a, a lot of fun. I'm glad you got on here and yes. muscled through. <laughs> I know, like we said, getting over a cold <laughs> right now is not always easy to talk for 30, 40 minutes, but no problem. I appreciate you coming on. Anyone who's listening right now, where can they find you on social media? How can they get in touch if they need some tax advice? Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I think this is a lot of fun. I love talking about succession planning, about tax. It's a passion of ours. If anybody needs assistance when it comes to a sale or a business transition, happy to help. We're located at 823 Park Street South, just south of Lansdowne Street in Peterborough. And our website is www.hrcpa.ca. My email address is mholmes at hrcpa.ca as well. Happy to assist anytime. Perfect. We'll make sure we get that in the show notes too for anyone listening if they want to make sure they get it. So thanks again, Matt. It's been fun. My pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Take care. Okay, you too. Investment services are provided through Matthews & Associates Investments of Aligned Capital Partners Incorporated and approved trade name of Aligned Capital Partners Inc., ACPI. Only investment-related products and services are offered through ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI and covered by the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Tax planning, financial planning, and insurance services are provided through Matthews & Associates. 
Matthews & Associates is an independent company separate and distinct from ACPI slash Matthews & Associates Investments of ACPI. Matthews & Associates are not licensed tax professionals, and you should consult with your tax advisor before acting on any recommendations. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Your Retirement Planning Simplified. Be sure to tune back in for the next episode. And until then, we're here to help you simplify and succeed in your retirement planning.